Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Takeda, better health, brighter future. Hello, and welcome to ADHD 365. I'm your host, Susan Booning. I'm Chad's Director of Communications and Media Relations and the Executive Editor of Attention Magazine. My guest today is Dr. Kathleen Nadeau, a psychologist and the founder of the Chesapeake Center and an internationally recognized authority on ADHD. She's also the author or co-author of over a dozen books related to ADHD, including Still Distracted After All These Years. Our topic today will be ADHD in adults at midlife. So Dr. Nadeau, is there anything you'd like to tell us about yourself? Well, I am an adult with ADHD. I come from a family of many people with ADHD. And so I've spent my entire very long career at this point. I've been a psychologist for 50 years now. I've spent many, many of those years focused on helping people understand ADHD and most importantly, what they can do to live a full, satisfying, productive life with this thing we call ADHD. And I would like to start with saying, I think we really need to come up with a different name for it. One of the things that distresses me so much is that there's very, very little training of professionals mental health professionals, whether it's psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, you name it, we get little to no training in how to treat ADHD. And then we come up with this name, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And so many mental health professionals think the main thing is attention. We know that adults are rarely hyperactive as they might have been as children. So we're just paying attention to attention when that is, I wouldn't even call it the tip of the iceberg. What we now know is that this thing we call ADHD impacts every aspect of our life. And the real challenge is how do we manage our lives? How do we accomplish what we want to accomplish in our lives? How do we manage ourselves? It goes far beyond attention. That's one of just many things we need to learn to manage. So what are some of the symptoms of ADHD in adults? I would like to talk about the impact of ADHD rather than the symptoms of ADHD for a very important reason. Here we are today, you and I are here to talk about adults age 50 and older. And There has been a committee formed that hasn't even begun yet, a committee formed to try to develop guidelines for what are the symptoms of ADHD in adults. So if I recited the symptoms to you, they'd be very misleading because the symptoms that we've used for decades were really developed to describe school children, many of whom were hyperactive, impulsive little boys. I've been beating the drum forever about the need for gender-sensitive diagnostic criteria 
And a lot of people may not know this, but in 1996, a full generation ago, a group of ADHD specialists met at the National Institute of Mental Health to talk about this very issue. And they wrote a paper about their proceedings in which they strongly voiced the need for gender-sensitive diagnostic criteria so that we could identify girls and women. A generation later, we still don't have those. And what's more, I talked to a member of this newly formed committee to develop adult guidelines and asked him specifically, and are you going to address gender differences? And his response was, not to my knowledge. So we have been beating this drum for so long. And so I don't want to talk about, for that very reason, what are the ADHD diagnostic criteria, but I would be happy to talk to you about what does this condition look like in people that are 50 or 60 or 70 years old. And there's an enormous range What I would say is my children are in their 50s, I'm in my 70s, so we all fall into this great lump of a category, which is absurd. The things I'm dealing with in my life are utterly different from the issues my children are dealing with. Some of them still have kids at home. They're in the peak of their career. I'm still working uh, very hard and enjoying it very much, but my grandchildren are getting ready to go to college. So we're we're in utterly different parts of our lives. And I think we need to distinguish and not just have this lump called older adults or adults over 50. So what I find is that if I were just talking to a clinician, what you should look for if somebody in their 50s walks into your office and thinks they may have this thing we call ADHD. What should you look for? And one of the things that I would tell you is it's not unusual, sadly, still not unusual to have people in their 50s walk in saying, I'm pretty sure I have it, but I've never been diagnosed. And very often what leads people to the diagnosis is that a family member, a generation or more younger than they have been diagnosed and they go, I was just like that when I was their age and I'm still dealing with a lot of the issues. So that being said, what does it look like when you're a middle-aged person? ADHD impacts our ability to regulate almost every aspect of our life. So it has to do with regulating our emotions that people with ADHD can either be highly irritable and maybe inappropriately angry, low frustration tolerance. And we see that more in men than in women. In women, we see emotional dysregulation, but it often looks like tearful upsets my feelings have been hurt. I feel so ashamed. I feel misunderstood. I feel unappreciated. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. And so what we see from the youngest age is, of course, there's overlap, but in general, males externalize the disorder. They're loud, they're noisy, argumentative, 
resistant, oppositional, angry, they make their voices heard. And females from the earliest age tend to internalize everything. I'm sad, I'm shy, I'm lonely, I don't feel good about myself, I wish I were accepted, I'm a mess. We know that the little bit of research that exists, that females with this thing we call ADHD are less accepted. That what society expects us to be as females is very hard for us to achieve as females with ADHD. Whereas by contrast, you may have heard that for the longest time, if a boy was described as possibly having ADHD, the father and the family might say, what are you talking about? He's just all boy, meaning that the symptoms of ADHD were congruent. Boys are supposed to be feisty and get in fights and be aggressive and stand up for themselves. And of course, boys think school is boring because school is boring for boys, you know. And in other words, girls are supposed to be sugar and spice and everything nice. We're supposed to not get upset. We're supposed to do as we're told. And it's much harder, I think, being a female with ADHD for that very reason, because it's not congruent with societal norms, societal expectations. The good news is society is changing. And so when I talk to women in their 50s, 60s, and beyond, they grew up, I grew up at a time when those norms were in full force. I remember, it sounds ridiculous and Victorian now, but when I was in school, 16, 17 years old, we had to get permission to wear pants. I went to a private school. It had to be cold enough. Otherwise, young ladies wear skirts and dresses. We had a lot more requirements. One of the things that I would say to our listeners is the best way to understand ADHD is how it interfaces with the environment we are living in. And so our ADHD can wax and wane. It can become better. It can become worse depending on the stress level in our lives. If we just had triplets, you better believe our ADHD is going to go through the roof when things calm down. I mean, you'll read that in post-retirement years that ADHD lessons, I don't think it lessens. I think that it looks better because the world is demanding less of us in those years. So it's really the interface between our ability to deal with the stress and demands of our daily life and what our daily life is expecting of us. When you ask me, what does it look like for people in their 50s, One of the things to take into account is that people in their 50s can be in utterly different situations. Some people had their children in their mid to late 30s, and they're still in the thick of raising teenagers who very likely have ADHD themselves. And so they're in a high stress period of their life. They're worrying about how am I going to pay for college? Another uh, 50 something year old might never have had children or might have had children when they were younger, and so they're in a different phase. And maybe the stresses in their life have to do with 
career demands because often peak demands in our careers occur in the 50s. You constantly have to look at that interface, that ADHD symptoms go up as demands go up, as stress level goes up. And so it's hard to make vast generalizations because we're each in a a unique situation in terms of how much support we have and how much stress we have. So are there ways that ADHD impacts health in adults at midlife and older? ADHD impacts health enormously. And the reason for that is when we're young, our bodies take care of themselves no matter how badly we treat them. We can get by on less sleep if we have to. We can get by on an unhealthy diet of fast food and junk food and carry out, and a lot of people do. We tend to be more active when we're younger, but it takes a lot of planning and forethought and discipline and organization to lead a healthy lifestyle. It means planning meals and cooking them at home because it's almost impossible to find truly healthy food. Carry out food has high fat content, high salt content, And so staying healthy as we get older requires intentional exercise, which as is hard for all of us to build into our life. I have said to many people that it's my dog that's keeping me healthy. I might neglect me, but I'm going to walk my dog twice a day, rain or shine. It's my dog that keeps me out there moving. And so Dr. Russell Barkley announced some very alarming research results not very many years ago. And that is that on average, our life is eight or 10 years shorter when we have ADHD that's not well addressed and treated. And a big part of that is unhealthy lifestyle that because we're not cooking healthy home-cooked meals, we're not eating lots of fruits and vegetables, we're not exercising. Sleep disturbance is endemic to people with ADHD and not getting good sleep impacts our health too. So we start to have high cholesterol, all of the inflammatory diseases. There is growing research that ADHD is correlated with eventually developing Alzheimer's. That research came out of Sweden. And it's very lifestyle related. I think a lot of people don't realize how lifestyle related dementia is, but some people are referring to Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes, meaning that the same lifestyle problems that often result in type 2 diabetes a few years later results in the beginning of dementia. So the health problems are tremendous. People with ADHD often struggle with being overweight, often struggle with not exercising, definitely struggle with dysregulated sleep. I've dealt with that all my life and I go to great efforts to try to regulate my sleep and to go to sleep on time and get up at the same time and exercise due to my dog. And yet it's still an effort and I have to make numerous efforts to try to get that. Now let's talk about women, especially at midlife, the challenges, the impairments, 
that come with hormonal shifts, especially the hormonal shifts associated with perimenopause and menopause, and the effects that has on a person's ADHD as well as on the rest of their life. Hormones are such an important issue for females across the lifespan, and we're not paying enough attention to it. And I think one of the reasons we're not is psychiatrists don't know anything about hormones and gynecologists don't know anything about ADHD. I mean, it just sort of falls in between those two silos. We have siloed medicine. And I'm very excited that in the Netherlands, a few weeks ago, three female physicians, one is a psychiatrist, one's a cardiologist, and one's a gynecologist, three women got together to form their own nonprofit to really promote cross-discipline research in this area. When my longtime friend and writing partner, Patricia Quinn, who is an MD, we've written books together for years, we used to joke, we're talking to the wrong people because we would talk about the issue of hormones to at a CHAD conference, at another ADHD conference, and all the physicians in the room were psychiatrists. They didn't know anything about hormones. In fact, some of the time they would argue there's absolutely no evidence that hormones impact ADHD. I would like to tell them that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You guys just haven't looked at it. So what we do know is that the impact of hormonal fluctuation begins at puberty for girls with ADHD. And so that's one of the reasons why that's a very common age for girls who've done just fine, I'm putting that in quotes, just fine, in elementary school, is they've tried so hard to keep it together, to not get in trouble with their teacher, with their parents through elementary school. And then the double whammy, they hit middle school, suddenly they have a bunch of teachers, a lot of different assignments. There's so much more to keep track of and be organized about, which is hard for ADHD brains. And at the same time, these four girls hit puberty and their hormones start fluctuating. And I have wished for years that somebody would track self-reported ADHD impact across the menstrual cycle. I think it would be very easy to document that in the premenstrual week that girls, we already know they experience more anxiety, more mood issues that we, but I know that they also experience more ADHD challenges. So that's just the beginning. A while ago, a long while ago, when women were first starting to be diagnosed with ADHD, it was reported that the average age of diagnosis was age 39. Why age 39? Age 39 is, on average, the beginning of perimenopause. And perimenopause, on average, lasts 10 or 11 years. So, menopause, defined as no menstrual period for 12 months, occurs on average at age 50. So you have this whole decade of declining estrogen. And women, even women who have been diagnosed, who have been in treatment, will go to their doctor saying, my medication doesn't seem to be working anymore. 
it's because of the fluctuating. So yet another reason why ADHD is more challenging for females. There's a more complicated physiology going on that impacts our brains. Then when we get to menopause, wham, we are very low on estrogen. There was enormous controversy and I think greatly exaggerated assessment of the dangers of hormone replacement therapy. Interestingly, when all that furor was going on here in the U.S. and women were saying, no, 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 it's very dangerous. I don't want hormone replacement therapy. A survey went out to female physicians in the U.K. who were age 50 and above. Are you yourself seeking hormone replacement therapy? Almost all of them were. They knew what the risks and benefits were, and they themselves were. So I think we've done ourselves a terrible disservice here in the U.S. that really needs to be addressed. And when they were talking about the benefits of this dangerous hormone replacement therapy, nobody was thinking about emotional or cognitive functioning. It wasn't even on the table. I mean, they were talking about, does it help your heart? And if it doesn't help your heart a great deal, why are you risking the danger of breast cancer? And we now know there certainly are women that because of their genetics can't tolerate hormone replacement therapy, that they're more at risk for breast cancer. But the majority of us greatly benefit from it. And yet there's not been enough information available to women about its not only its safety, but its tremendous benefits, especially if you're a woman with ADHD. So what are some of the most challenging changes in symptoms that people in general with ADHD might experience as they age? I wouldn't say there's a huge change in symptoms. We know that people are less likely to be hyperactive as they get older, but that begins earlier in adulthood. There certainly are a few that are hyperactive to the bitter end. I remember when I was doing research on my book, and by the way, my book, Still Distracted After All These Years, has come out. It's been out for several months now, and it is the first and only book for older adults with ADHD. And I interviewed, I had a wonderful time talking to a huge range of people all over the country for the book, half men, half women. And I remember interviewing one man who was in his late 80s. He had, was a very success, successful international businessman. And get this, I've never known a woman to be able to arrange this. He and his wife had built this import-export business up, hugely successful worked together in the business, they divorced because she got very tired of taking care of him, as she put it, when he was home at night. They'd work together all day in the office. He and his wife, his ex-wife now, still own the business together and still run the business together. And he has remarried the woman who brings him his slippers and his hot tea when he gets home. So he has help at the office and help at home. It's But this guy, if he's still alive, and I bet he is, he's in his early 90s, and he was very hyperactive and still going strong, but needed a pretty massive support system. 
hyperactivity decreases. And what we really are left with is our symptoms are reflective of the situation we find ourselves in. And by that, I mean that I have worked with women who've been divorced in their early 50s, and they are suddenly on their own financially, very ill-prepared to be on their own financially. Their stress level is very high. Their quality standard of living has suddenly decreased. And their ADHD symptoms, of course, increase because there is a direct correlation. As stress goes up, ADHD symptoms go up. But by the same token, there are people who are in a stable marriage, whose children have left the nest and they're in their mid-50s and their stress level is going down. So when you talk about ADHD in the last third of life, it depends entirely upon the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I had the wisdom to marry a man who's very good at keeping all the trains running on time. He's, I've always often joked that he has added at least a decade to my life by just saying, do you realize it's bedtime? I will be immersed in whatever I'm immersed in. I had no idea it was bedtime. Absolutely. But what are the most effective treatments for adults with ADHD in midlife? And what are some ways treatment may change as people get older? Well, stimulants are beneficial to us at every age and stage in life. Many physicians incorrectly think that as we develop heart problems or other health issues, that stimulants are dangerous and shouldn't be prescribed. And I actually had a psychiatrist at my clinic who just flat out declared, I will not prescribe stimulants to anyone over age 60. But meanwhile, stimulants are commonly used in nursing homes. So it makes no sense. It's really a lack of training. And there's a huge gap. Again, people are falling through in between the medical silos, if you will, because people that have never been diagnosed with ADHD and they're experiencing forgetfulness as they get older, think, oh my gosh, is this the beginning of cognitive decline when they've been really forgetful all their lives? They're just now worried about it because of their age. And they go to a memory clinic. Well, memory clinics, they just focus on beginning of dementia. They don't focus on ADHD in late life. They don't know anything about it. In fact, Dr. David Goodman, who is an adult ADHD specialist, he's affiliated with Hopkins, and he did a survey of memory clinics a number of years ago, asking them the simple question, do you screen for adult ADHD when someone comes concerned about memory. And the vast majority of them didn't do that at all, wasn't on their radar. So we have this disorder that falls between a lot of cracks. And and sadly, it's the way we practice medicine, that medicine has become so complex that everybody has their own little arena and there's no cross-fertilization. I think that's a, a serious issue. Absolutely. And do you have some suggestions for ways adults with ADHD can work 
more, maybe more closely with their healthcare providers in order to find effective approaches and strategies they can use throughout their lifetime and maybe make them more aware of ADHD. I have certainly had people tell me that they've taken my book to their healthcare provider because their healthcare provider has certainly not read it, probably not even known of its existence. I think this has been true for a long time that so many adults with ADHD are educating their primary care physician or their healthcare providers. And it's, it's sad that we have to advocate for ourselves in that way. But the fact is that if you look at psychiatry training, the vast majority of adult psychiatry training programs, and we're talking about three or four years of training, typically spend about half a day training residents in adult ADHD. And going back to my friend, David Goodman, he has talked long and hard about adult ADHD as one of the four most common adult psychiatric disorders. And yet, how can it be we're not training psychiatrists in how to diagnose and treat it? The other three, anxiety, depression, and bipolar, they know all about those. So there's a huge training gap that we're really trying to address now. Definitely. And this circles us back to the guidelines that are so badly needed that you mentioned earlier. And I've heard they're on their way. I don't know what that means in terms of timing, but I'm thinking about the people newly diagnosed with ADHD at midlife as middle-aged adults. And what are some of the reasons for the delayed diagnosis aside from these guidelines not yet being in place? I think it's because the vast majority of the public is still stuck in stereotypic, inaccurate, outdated notions of what ADHD is. It's such a common disorder. I cannot go on a plane ride and start chatting with the person in the seat next to me that they don't say, oh, my son has it, my nephew has it, my brother. Everybody thinks they know ADHD. But what they know, and I put that in quotes, is the version of ADHD that's common in young males. And so they don't know ADHD and how it impacts the rest of us. What happens in midlife for us depends very much on the scaffolding, the structures around us. We use that term scaffolding a lot, talking about how to help kids in school. Scaffolding, of course, meaning the structure and support that we put around kids so they function better. And that might be reminders, that might be working with someone to get something done rather than doing it on your own. We need scaffolding in midlife as well. I was contacted by a woman that I had done a consultation with, very bright woman. She'd been a journalist and then a writer, and she was working on a book. I hadn't heard from her in several years. She got in touch with me and said, can you help me? I'm desperate. I'm trying to finish this book. I have a contract. I have a publisher. I can't get myself to do it. And I said, absolutely, I can help you. And I can help you in one session. 
because let me tell you what you need. You need what coaches call a body double. And that is, it's a body double. And that's somebody that just sits there with you to support you in doing whatever it is that you're having a very hard time doing. And so she thought about it for a minute and she said, could my mother be my body double? My mom, who's retired, lives in the same town as I do. And I said, absolutely, she'd be perfect. Tell your mom to come over to your house and go about her morning as she would at home. Have her coffee, have her breakfast, watch the Today Show, whatever it is that she normally does in the morning, knowing that she's there to support you and you're sitting there at the dining room table working on your book. And that's why she's there. So you'll work on your book. So you're not going to go on social media or pat the cat when your mother's there for the sole purpose of working on your book. I heard from her about six months later and she said that was brilliant and my book is complete. All I did was some very simple education about the need for scaffolding, the need for structure and support. And that's why I mentioned that I'm married to somebody that keeps the trains running on time. He always knows what time it is. That was so puzzling to me years ago. We've been together for almost 50 years now. And he would look at his watch and I'd say, why are you looking at your watch? Is something about to happen? He says, I'm looking at my watch because I want to know what time it is. And I thought, what a novel concept. (laughs) I never look at my watch unless I'm trying to catch a train or pick somebody up. had no idea that people kept track of the time all day long. (laughs) So when you say what's helpful to adults... It's really teaching them how to understand themselves, how to really accept and celebrate themselves for who they are. We've received so many negative messages, most of us, all of our lives, because we're supposed to be somebody that we're not, and to understand what kinds of supports we need. And what we may need is a different supervisor if we have a hypercritical or demanding one. Or we may need to change jobs because you're working in a chaotic or high-stress environment and you need one that is calmer. I remember working with a guy, and he wasn't older, he was in his 30s, and was really trying to learn about his ADHD and how to find a work environment that would be good for him. And I told him the importance of natural light, that our brains really work better, and that I always have a home office that faces a window because I feel better if the natural light is coming in, that it really matters if it's quiet, if we're not being constantly interrupted, if unreasonable demands are not being placed on us to do way too much all at the same time. So he was talking to his father about what he was learning, working with me. And his father said, nonsense. The job is a job. He'd been offered a job that was basically in a windowless warehouse environment. Awful, uncomfortable, cement floors, windowless. And his father said, nonsense. It's work. Go to work. Do your work. Just completely insensitive and ignorant about what helps our brain to function better and what interferes with good brain functioning. So a lot of it is 
getting beyond everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? We each have different brains and really learning and becoming comfortable with these are the circumstances under which we work best. I'm an extrovert. I work best when I have people to talk to. I have better ideas when I'm talking out loud. Other people, oh, please quit talking. I need to go over here and be quiet and think. There's nothing wrong with either approach. It's really learning how our particular brain works and then trying to find the environment that'll let that happen. Absolutely. Now, for an adult who suspects or thinks that they may have ADHD, but they've never been diagnosed, what should a middle-aged adult expect if they seek a diagnosis? What would a comprehensive evaluation look like for them? A lot of people think they need a neuropsych eval to be diagnosed. And some physicians think you need a neuropsych eval to be diagnosed. At my clinic, we do lots of neuropsych evals. I'm not saying they're not valuable. A neuropsychological evaluation really looks at many different aspects of cognitive functioning. And those kinds of evaluations are required by schools, by universities, and sometimes by employers to document ADHD. But that being said, that's expensive and lengthy. And a good, solid diagnosis can be made by an educated clinician. We offer an adult ADHD assessment in my clinic, which is not a full neuropsych, and, but it does consist of some testing. And the reason we do it is physicians have more faith in it if we give them numbers. So we'll give you a computerized test and say you scored in the 79th percentile above the midline and so absolutely indicative of ADHD and we'll give you self-report questionnaires so that we can produce a number or a percentile. But really a good diagnosis is based on a strong clinical interview. I don't use those when somebody comes to me to say, do you think I have ADHD? And what I look at in them is number one, ADHD is so highly genetic that if there's not one soul in your family that has any ADHD-like symptoms, it's probably something else. That's so, so unusual. And normally, and I'm not saying ADHD diagnosis, so I'll say to a middle-aged person, was either one of your parents kind of messy or disorganized or late or talked constantly or made impulsive life changes or lost jobs frequently. I'll I'll just go through the list and go, oh, I remember one guy that I was diagnosing and he was an engineer. He had an engineering degree, bright guy. And I was asking him, he's an only child, so he didn't have any siblings with ADHD. And his dad was an accountant and his mom had been a teacher and then she stayed home to raise him. So, you know, on the surface, it looked like how could you have ADHD? Look at, and then he started telling me about his dad. And he said, I grew up in this big old wooden Victorian house and dad's office was on the main floor. And we had an old clawfoot bathtub on the top floor where my dad threw his files. Can you imagine a CPA with a filing system? I said, uh-huh, I'm beginning to see 
And he described that I did well while I was at home, as he jokingly said, I didn't have permission to have ADHD. My mother was just right on top of me as I was a kid. I was an only child. And the minute I went away to college, then the wheels started coming off the bus because my mom wasn't there to remind me and make sure I was on track. So it's not easy to find a clinician who is very experienced in adult ADHD. And often, oddly enough, the town I live in, which is about 40 miles outside of Washington, D.C., for a long time, the person that treated the most adults, diagnosed and treated the most adults, was a pediatrician. And it's because he knew all about ADHD and often he started treating the parents of the kids. Can you help me? I mean, you know me, you know the family. And he became a self-taught expert in adult ADHD. So they can be found in unexpected places. But that being said, we are an ADHD specialty clinic and I'm well known for years and years of work with adults. And we have people across the country that will contact us saying, do you know of anybody in my area? And some people even flying to Washington, D.C. to be evaluated at my clinic. And often I'll tell them if there's a university or college near you, there's so many college students with ADHD. There's almost always a psychiatrist affiliated with the school that prescribes medications for all those college students. And that's the most likely person to be comfortable diagnosing and treating ADHD because they're already working with young adults, not children. So that's one of the that's a great suggestion. recommendations I make. Are there other specialists that people might take a look at too in their areas? Especially I'm thinking about all the people in rural America. Sadly, all the people in rural America are almost certainly going to have to travel to the nearest city to find. Fortunately, I think this is one of the blessings of COVID is that we're used to talking to each other online. And so I tell people now, even if you have to drive to Cincinnati or St. Louis or wherever it is, the city nearest you, to get that diagnosis, you can be treated really well treated online once you establish a relationship with somebody. And I want to make a very clear distinction between that and these dreadful pop-up online treatment services where they diagnose ADHD after a 20-minute conversation and prescribe stimulants. I think that's malpractice as far as I'm concerned, and that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that post-COVID, and this is true of my clinic, we are happy to see people in person, but very often people say, I'd rather just talk to you from my home office so I don't have to spend an hour and a half going and coming. We're used to seeing each other and talking to each other online, which I think makes treatment more accessible now. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you to talk about is maintaining relationships. We know that can be challenging for adults who have ADHD. We also know how important social connection is to mental and physical health. So do you have any suggestion for adults in this age group with regard to socializing? I absolutely do. I think that socializing, thank goodness, has changed and become less burdensome. 
And by that, I mean that women used to feel compelled to invite people over, which means I have to clean up my house. I have to go to the store and buy food. I have to fix it. I have to be a hostess. And one of the questions, I created a questionnaire for all the older adults And I asked them about their social life and do you entertain at home? And I'll never forget the response of one woman, which I thought was hilarious. And she said, not if I can help it. But I think now people, women don't require that of themselves. Women aren't apologizing because they pop by the grocery store to buy something to take to a potluck. Women aren't expecting themselves to be Betty Crocker plus a professional woman anymore. And I think that's very liberating. So I think social life is so important. And one of the things I think is so important is to socialize with other people that get you. And that often means finding your tribe among the ADHD community. There are online adult support groups. We offered an adult support group at the beginning of COVID for older adults that was so popular. A year and a half later, my co-facilitator and I said, we need to turn our attention to other things. So we're not going to be able to continue facilitating this group. But we really hope you guys continue because you've really formed great bonds. And these were people uh, from all over the country. And to this day, they're still meeting. We helped them organize. One of them purchased a Zoom contract so it doesn't cut off at 45 minutes. And the whole group contributed to that. It wasn't that expensive for the group to pay for it. And they are still meeting and still having a good time doing it. So I think that connection with people that understand and get us is so critical. I've been conducting focus groups this summer and I've had a wonderful time doing it. All of these focus groups have been with various subgroups of women because I think we've painted women with ADHD with the same brush. And if you look at an awful lot of the books that have been written for women, it's as if all women are white and middle-class and married mothers living in suburbia. When they're talking about the woes of their child's ADHD and how do I get supper on the table when I have soccer games, just this very stereotypical white middle-class life. And that's not who we all are. And so I've been conducting focus groups of older women, of black women, of LGBTQ women, of women entrepreneurs, a long list. And I've been so struck by these total strangers coming together with me online and just immediately bonding and talking and connecting with each other because they feel safe because they recognize the similarities amongst them. And I think that is so crucial. And that's something that, you know, all of the chat as well started out very much focused on parents. And I really hope that all of our organizations can provide just a venue online, if not in person. And it's easier to organize it online. It's easier to get to an online group than having to drive across town to get there that can give you those connections. But I think that 
it's not just people with ADHD. We, there have been lots of articles in the news about the loneliness epidemic in the United States. And I think that loneliness epidemic is even more difficult when you have ADHD because women especially have spent so many years feeling like I just seem to keep making faux pas in my social interactions. I talk too much or I interrupt or I lose track of the conversation or I repeat myself or whatever. And so they go into social interactions anxious and feeling that they have to mask who they are. And it's just such a relief to be in a group online or in person with other women that I can relax. I can laugh about the idiotic thing I forgot yesterday or the... So So important. I love that find your tribe message. That's right. What are some simple steps that our listeners can implement today to improve their quality of life with ADHD at midlife? I think that what I've created an acronym called MENDS, M-E-N-D-S-S, to remind people of what they need to do. And the M stands for meditation, but what I really mean by that is stress management. And there are all kinds of ways to manage your stress through yoga, through deep breathing, through meditative practices. E is for exercise. We feel enormously better every day when we exercise. And that's why my doggy is busily keeping me alive and healthy every day. N is um, for nature, exposure to nature. There's a lot of research that shows that being outside calms us and makes us feel connected. D is for diet, and that is a healthy, nutritious diet. It's so important when we have ADHD. And the two S's, S-S, M-E-N-D-S, are for sleep and for social connection. And people look at that list and go, how can I possibly do all that? And I talk about it's really not as hard as it sounds because of what is called habit stacking. If you go for a walk outside with a friend, you've already knocked three of those off in the course of half an hour. It's really developing a healthier lifestyle and your brain will work better. I talked to a young woman who, after having led an adolescence during COVID online, just not eating well, exercising rarely, went into this outdoor camping experience for the summer. And she said, I can't believe how good I feel just to be with other kids outside, moving, not in front of a screen all day long. So in a funny way, I think... ADHD is exacerbated enormously by modern life. And really a lot of what we're recommending is the way we used to live, connected to our communities more, eating home-cooked meals. When I was a kid, I don't think we ate out once a month. Nobody did. You ate at home. So we've created a lifestyle that's unhealthy for our brains. And I think those of us with ADHD are particularly susceptible to this unhealthy, immobile, staring at my screen, poor sleep, poor diet, socially isolated. So M-E-N-D-S is what to remember. 
I love it. It's fabulous. I was writing it down as you were saying that. It's wonderful. Can you recommend any resources that tailor information to this age group? As I said, to my knowledge, my book is the one and only and hopefully just the first book that really addresses ADHD in older adults. I've spent my whole career looking at who are we ignoring? Who are we ignoring? That's why I started focusing on girls and women. Nobody was paying any attention to them. That's why I started paying attention to older adults. And that's why I'm going back and paying attention to all these subgroups of women, that there's enormous diversity in the women that have ADHD. And we we shouldn't treat them as if we're some big amorphous mass and we're all alike, because we're not. That's so true. So my very last question is one I always like to ask, which is there anything that I did not ask you that you would like to tell our listeners? Yes, I think uh, that if you can take care of yourself in the way we've been talking about, that there are tremendous advantages to this thing that we currently call an attention deficit. A lot of people with ADHD have more curiosity and more energy and are more creative and more willing to take risks. I've had a wonderful career because I've chosen a career that really suited my brain. I like to talk to people and that's what I've done all day long for almost 50 years now. So you'd be talking to a very miserable me if I'd been in some cubicle looking at a computer for those same same 50 years. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. This podcast was sponsored by Takeda. Better health, brighter future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast.